Okay, Boker Tov. And a uh, very happy Erev Hanukkah, Erev Thanksgiving, Erev everything. Okay, Parshas Miketz, page 222 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Happens to be my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. Doesn't mean I know it any better than any other Parsha. I could promise you that. And certainly don't ask me to lane it, whatever whatever you do. So we'll do as always... Don't ask the age. As always, we do our overview of the Parsha, and then we'll get into a specific Pesukim. These parshios, I think, are just incredible insight into the human psyche and human relationships and the unfolding of a drama, which is maybe unparalleled. It's just, I was about to say, someone should make a movie or play out of it, but I guess they did. But um, it's, it's an absolutely incredible story, and the psukim themselves have such nuance. And by asking the right questions and offering interesting suggestions, you can see what's going on beneath the text. There's the text, there's the narrative, there's what we see before our eyes, but there's a lot going on beneath the surface as well. But let's begin with our overview, and then we'll look into it. So, last week's Parsha left off, of course, with uh, Yosef being liberated, being freed from prison. I spoke last Shabbos about the idea of Yosef's transition from a person who takes selfies, from a person who is uh, self-absorbed, looks in the mirror, what the Torah describes as a na'ar, consumed by brushing his hair and beautifying himself, to the end of the parsha where he says, He looks at his cellmates and he says, Why are you so sad? Why are you so downtrodden? And that transition from being self-absorbed to being taking an interest in others brings about his own personal redemption. That's what I spoke about last, uh, last Shabbos. Put it up on the blog if anybody wants to see it as well. And uh, the idea of, of not focusing on ourselves in a na'ar sassistic way Na'ar, statistics, but um, weak. Okay, but um, but caring about others. So so Yosef is in fact uh, taken out. He is recalled that he has this incredible skill as a interpreter of dreams. He's brought to Paro, and our parsha begins with the dreams of Paro. Paro is sleeping. It's two years later. What's the significance of two years later? So the Medrash tells us Rashi quotes it because Yosef relied on the human being. He therefore was punished by remaining an extra two years in prison. The time really had come for him to come out, but he doesn't come out. He's not freed because he had reminded, please, when you get out, help me. And by relying on man, God, Mida Kenegid Mida, left him in prison two more years. So Paro has these two dreams, and he's unable to satisfactorily get an interpretation. All of his magicians and sorcerers and interpreters sits on the couch of countless psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers. Nobody could tell Paro what these dreams mean. And of course, this is, we're not going to now, but this is the launch pad to have big discussions about dreams in Judaism. Divrei Chalomos, dreams. Do they have meaning? Do they not have meaning? Do they have halachic implications? Do they not have halachic implication? Are they binding or not binding? Should we give them attention or ignore them? Are they any more than an uh, expression of our subconscious or what we're thinking about as we fall asleep? Should we share them with others? Not. Hatavas Chalom is a lot to talk about about dreams. But not for now. So Paro has these dreams and they haunt him. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't say, I don't know what to make of it. He's haunted. And he's haunted that he can't find an interpretation. So at that point we know that the... Um, the... Sara um, Tabachim, the butcher, reminds Paro, I also had a terrible dream. And I too was haunted by it. And there was a young... And he says it in a derogatory fashion because he thinks he's going to find favor with Paro by being derogatory about him. Nar Ivri Eved. There was a young 
Ivri Me'ever from the other side, an Eved servant, and that's what Rashi quotes. Nar Ivri Eved The wicked can't do anything right, even though he did a noble thing by recalling Yosef. He had to do it in a derogatory fashion and put Yosef down. Nebuch, they can't get anything right. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So, but anyway, he recalls to Paro Yosef's prowess. Yo, Paro says, okay, I'll give it a shot. Tried everything. They summon Yosef, and Yosef comes. And now Yosef interprets Paro's dreams. But Yosef does a few remarkable things here. This is not the section I want to concentrate on, but I'll just draw your attention to it. By the beginning of the conversation, Paro is a pagan. Paro is an idolater. Paro is the leader of, a, leader of a country, a nation of pagans. By the end of the conversation, Paro turns to his other, uh, his cabinet, and he says, Have you ever seen somebody who's such God's presence? And he continues, by the end of the conversation, Paro's talking about God. How does that happen? How does Paro go from somebody who is a pagan and idolater to somebody who keeps talking about who keeps talking about God? What's going on? So last week's parsha in Vayeshev, the Rashi already quoted from the Medrash that one of Yosef's wonderful attributes is Shem Shemaim Shkura Befiv. Yosef sounded what I would describe like a Michlala girl. Nirtz Hashem, Be'ezus Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. Everything was Hashem. Hey, Baruch Hashem, Nirtz Hashem, Be'ezus Hashem. Every time Yosef had the opportunity to name drop Hashem, he name dropped Hashem. And he does so in his conversation here with Paro. Look at this conversation, it's incredible. Right? Paro says, I heard about you. Here he's got this lowly servant who 15 minutes ago was in prison, disheveled, wearing a prison uniform. And now he's standing before the mightiest emperor in the world. And Paro says to him, I've heard about you. I've heard you're pretty good. I heard you've got some skills. And what does Yosef say? What would most of us say? Yeah. I try. I do my best. Let me hear. What does Yosef say? He challenges Paro. It's pretty risky business. He should have just nodded with humility, bowed his head humbly. He says, Biladai, it's not me. You're wrong. It's not me. Elohim Shlom Paro. It's God. Right away he's invoking God. Very powerful. Biladai, it's not me. Elokim yane. And then Yosef tells him again. What did Yosef do that none of the other interpreters did? How did Paro know Yosef's interpretation was correct and he rejected everyone else's? It's not that Yosef had a happier ending. Yosef says you're going to have seven years of plenty and then it's followed by seven years of famine. That's not a happy story. So why was Paro predisposed to accept Yosef's interpretation when he rejected that of everyone else? I think there are two things. Number one, Yosef offered an integrated interpretation. Paro had two dreams and everyone else explained it as two separate interpretations. Yosef integrated them together. It's one dream you're having. The interpretation is one integrated interpretation. Furthermore, Yosef offered a solution within the interpretation. Everyone else told Paro there's going to be problems. It represents death. It represents you're going to have kids. You're going to lose them. Everyone else told him sad things. Yosef said, here's what it means. Seven years of plenty. Seven years of famine. And here's what you need to do. What it means is you need to save. Important lesson for 
us individually and as a country. Yosef was a great economist. Yosef, as an economist, should be studied and certainly should perhaps be better applied in the United States of America today. But we need to save. We need to be able to save and not build up a deficit. Oh, yes, but Paro liked that. Paro liked that. I once gave a drush and I said that, you know, a wise person once told me that you shouldn't accept anybody's complaints unless they also offer a solution. You can come and complain to me about anything you want about the shul, about the community. Tell me any problem. Share with me any deficiency, any negative, on one condition. You have to offer a solution. To just come and gripe, to just come and complain, to just tell me what's wrong, I don't need you for that. I know everything that's wrong. If I don't know what's wrong, you point it out to me that it's wrong and I'm left with that, how does that help? Come and say, here's an area which I think is a problem, and here's my suggestion about how we can dive in slower, or how we can have more shalom bias in the community, or how we can have more classes that would provide this, that, or the other, or how we can offer a minion that you can't offer any problem, you got to have the solution. Yod Paro didn't just want someone to come and tell him what the dreams meant. He wanted a suggestion about a solution. Yosef was the only one who did that. But at the end of the solution, what does Yosef say? What God plans to do, He's telling you, Paro. This premonition in your dream is God revealing what's going to happen. Again, what do you see Yosef do again? And then Yosef, after interpreting the dream, says, Yeah, this is God's plan and God's about to carry it out. And after all this name dropping, and after all these Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, right, Biladai, it's not me, Elokim Yaneshlom Paro. And then he says, Sasher Elokim Oseh, what God's going to do, he's telling you. Over and over, it's unbelievable. It takes a certain brazenness, a chutzpah. Yosef standing in front of the emperor of the world, the most powerful man on earth, who himself is a pagan, and Yosef subtly, he's not overt. He's not shoving it down Paro's throat. He's not proselytizing. He just subtly slips in there, God. And what is the end of the conversation? By the end of the conversation, what does Paro say? Have you ever seen such a holy man? Have you ever seen such a sacred man? It's very, po- it's very powerful. So you see that Yosef really may be the first one to introduce us in the Torah to outreach. And Yosef's outreach is not overt or explicit and Yosef's outreach is not proselytizing and it's not coercive Yosef's outreach is you name drop you mention you know God someone says tell me about this God or yeah God's responsible for the blessing or they associate you who's done something for them with God Yosef name drops God and has an incredible impact by the end how does Paro respond and react to all of this this is supposed to be our overview ha There's, there's a lot of questions you could ask. Yosef tells Paro, Now, um, When Yosef gives Paro the suggestion, which someone here pointed out was also brazen, because Paro never asked for it, Yosef intuited that that would be a positive thing to offer, but Paro could have looked at him and said, Hey, chutzpah Hey, chutzpah kid. I just told you to interpret. I didn't ask for your solutions. But he embraces it. But what's the suggestion? Paro needs to look for an ish navon v'chacham, a wise and discerning man. Why was that necessary? Is that really what Paro needed at this point? Yosef tells him, here's what your dreams mean. 
Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. You better save in the years of plenty, and it will, it will sustain you in the years of famine. Do you need a discerning, insightful, brilliant person to do that? Sure, because at that time, the tendency might be to live it up, to use it up. So if you have somebody who's a little bit more conservative, he's going to tell you, you've got it now, hold on to a section or a portion because you need it later. Otherwise, Good. So that, that's a good answer. But to, but to compound the question, in other words, I, I think all you need is someone with good organizational skills. You need somebody who knows your income, knows your expenses, knows how to save and bank the money. You don't need somebody with brilliance in nuance, someone who is discerning, wise. You need someone who's well organized. Why does Yosef Talparo look for an Ishnavon Vechacham? Interesting question. We don't have time for now. Lubavitcher Rebbe Zatzal gives a great answer to that question. But keep going on. So, by the way, Yosef positions himself. He doesn't say it, but who happens to be discerning and wise who's standing right in front of Paro? It's not a, not a stupid guy, Yosef. He understands. So what is it? Paro like on cue. Paro as if on cue. Top of page 228. He says, yeah, that's good. I accept that. But Yomer Paro. And Paro says... Has anyone seen such a man of insight? And then again, Vayomer Paro Yosef, You're the one who interpreted my dreams. You're the wise and discerning man that you mentioned. You're the right man for the job. And then what does he say? Vayomer Paro Yosef. Look, I've placed you upon everybody. What's troubling about the succession of those psukim? What's startling? Vayomer Paro Yosef. And two psukim later, Vayomer Paro Yosef. What's missing in between? Vayomer. Yosef Alparo. Silence. No reaction. Also, it's, it's missing. Right. Okay, there at least maybe Paro is sharing his observation with the servants. They're just, they just bow. That's their job. They're just supposed to applaud and bow. Right, they complained. They, complain. they felt rejected. Right, exactly. They weren't happy. But why? Twi- immediately in a row, Paro talks to Yosef. Paro talks to Yosef. So the Medrash tells us what it means. You know what it means? There was a delay. Paro paused. There's a pregnant pause in the conversation. Paro tells Yosef, You've interpreted correctly. I accept your interpretation. And you're the wise man that you say, I'm. Not only are you now free, you're the number two in the country. This is the strongest empire in the world, and I've just taken you from rags to riches. You've just come from prison, from being a criminal, to being my vice president. Okay, no comment. I've just taken you from being, I've just taken you from being the, the in prison to being the most powerful person, only second to me. How does Yosef respond? We have no idea. There's a pregnant pause. Is he overwhelmed? Can he not find words? Does he not feel there are words? Is he offering a prayer to God, expressing gratitude? There's a moment of quiet between Paro and Yosef. There's something unspoken. And then Paro continues. Vayom Paro again, he reiterates. Just something for you to think about. I'm not sure exactly what it means. But I think it's interesting to note this pregnant pause in the text. What was Yosef thinking? What did Yosef say or not say? Was he praying? Was he thinking? Did he say something? The text didn't record it. 
what's really going on. But anyway, continuing. So Paro, uh, Paro takes him and they begin to implement the plan. By the way, here's another, again, this is not what we're going to concentrate on, but another thing to think about. Who does Paro, the great Sharchan of Egypt, who does he introduce Yosef to as a wife? Osnas Bas Potifera Kohen On. And her name is Osnas, and she is the daughter of Potifera. Does that name sound familiar? Potiphar. Remember the wife of Potiphar? Remember how Yosef got into prison to begin with? Now, here too, there's a lot that's unspoken in the text itself. Does Yosef so to say to Paro, Thank you very much. You've been wonderful to me. I, but the shidduch suggestion, I'm not sure it's going to work out. There's a little history with my mother-in-law, with my father-in-law. You know, does Yosef object or resist the shidduch? Does Potiphar say to Paro, Are you out of, with all due respect, sir, emperor, are you out of your mind? Do you know what this young man did? Does Mrs. Potiphar does she say, okay, good, I'll get a second chance at him? Or does she say, does she say, you know, no way you could bring him, him around? What, what is she thinking? So much in the text is unspoken. So much in the text is unspoken. But the Medrash fills in a lot of the gap. And by the way, is he marrying a non-Jewish woman from... Also, we know Potiphar, the Medrash in last week's Pasha. Why was Mrs. Potiphar so interested in Yosef? Her husband was impotent. Her husband was a sris. Her husband had been cast... What's it called? Castrated. castrated. Her husband had been castrated. Medrash fills in. Her husband was castrated. He was impotent. She craved intimacy. And that's why she pursued Yosef with such a reckless abandon. So if that's the case, where's the daughter from? So the Medrash says, in fact, she's adopted. And you know who the daughter is? You know who she is? She's the daughter of the product of Dina and Shechem. When Shechem raped Dina, there was a daughter. They were embarrassed. Some things haven't changed in certain communities. To have her around. So she was shipped out. She ended up making her way to Egypt. She was adopted by Potiphar and his wife. And that's the Shadchan, that's the Shidduch here. When Yosef marries Osnas, Osnas really is part of the family. Osnas is his niece who it's permissible to marry, the Nitziv married his niece. It's permissible to marry one's niece halachically. Asnas is none other than Yosef. As you can see, there's a lot not included in the text here. But, um, but in any case, you can only imagine that first Yontif with his mother-in-law. Yosef and, Yosef and Potiphar, Yosef and the, and the mother-in-law. So, Yosef then has two children. Yosef has two children in Egypt. Menashe and Ephraim and here too fascinating their names we don't have a lot of time to spend on it Yosef names the eldest Menashe why does he call him Menashe? Kinashani Elohim as kol amaliv as kol beis avi what do those words mean? he names him Menashe God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's household so first of all that's a rough name for a kid to bear my name is my father through me has forgotten all of his hardship in his father's household. That's a rough name. But moreover, there's one thing I know about Yosef that he named his kid, I have forgotten all of my hardship in my father's household. And what is it? That he has not forgotten his hardship in his father's household. Right? The one thing you know is that he's not... If you name your kid, if you name your kid, I have forgotten, so the one thing you know is you haven't forgotten. 
But moreover, isn't it a little bit callous of Yosef? Ah, Yaakov, my brothers, I, who are they? I don't even know who they are. God has comforted me by allowing me for... It's a little callous. It's a little casual. It's a little crass. It's a little insensitive. Is this a coping mechanism? Yosef names his eldest kid. God, thank God who's caused me to forget my father and my brothers and all that I came from. Really? How is it possible Yosef who was so close with his family? Yosef who was so beloved, the apple of his father's eye. How is it possible he names his oldest kid I've forgotten my whole family? So there are a number of answers suggested. The Akedah suggests that Yosef doesn't mean I've literally forgotten them. Yosef means I've been blessed with selective memory. That this distance and being here in Egypt has allowed me to only remember nostalgically the good times. God has comforted me by allowing me to have selective memory. You know, forgetfulness is an unbelievable blessing. Forgetfulness is a blessing. Too much forgetfulness is a curse. But having too much memory is also a curse. The right amount of selective memory is a, is a blessing. I once spoke about on Yom Kippur. You know, we praise God in the davening. Zacharti la chesed Hashem. Right, we all know the beautiful song. God, you remembered our wonderful, our wonderful trip through the desert. Wonderful trip through the desert? Forty years, we didn't stop complaining and fetching and rebelling and miserable. God, you recall nostalgically our wonderful 40 year to get... Wonderful. It was miserable. It was horrible. But you know what happens? It's like you look back at your picture albums of the vacation of the... the all you remember are the good times and the wonderful times. We say God had a selective memory and we try to invoke God's selective memory on your kipper. Remember the good times. Remember the merits. So Yosef says, He says the Akedah. Yosef is saying, God, thank you for giving me selective memory. I only remember nostalgically the wonderful good. Refresh has a different interpretation about what this name means. That Yosef, we'll save it for another time. But basically Yosef transforms the, the hardship of what his brothers did into realizing the good. He says, look, I would never be the viceroy of Egypt have this wonderful family, be in such a position of power and influence, save the world through my economic prowess, if not for what my brothers did. He's able to transform the negative into the positive and refresh, leave for another time, how he sees that within the words, Kinashani Elohim, you can look up the refresh inside. Anyway, the famine indeed comes and devastates Egypt. And that's what I want to study together is Perak Mem Beis. So let's go right to it. The rest of the overview you'll have to do on your own. Study the parsha. It's actually a mitzvah. Shnai mikra v'echad targum. Okay. Page two thirty-two in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash Perak Membeis Chapter 40, forty-two, verse number one. Yaakov levanav Yaakov sees that there are provisions in Egypt. We're all suffering in Israel. The world has a terrible recession slash depression. People are waiting on food lines. No one has access to food. But ya- Yaakov sees Vayar that there's plenty. Egypt has abundance. So he says to his sons, why Tisro? Why are we suffering? Let's go tap into it. What's interesting in this passage? What bothers you? What do you mean sees? What did he turn on? Fox News? CNN? MSNBC? What did he see? Where he saw that, he read it in the Washington Journal, New York Times. Where did he read it? What do you mean, Vayar? What should it say? It should say, He heard. 
So look at Rashi. Where did he see it? Should be he heard. Because that's what he goes on to say. What does it mean that he saw? Says Rashi, Very, very interesting. Yaakov had prophecy. Yaakov was a prophet. But he had here a cloudy, foggy prophecy. There's a prophecy which is clear, prophecy that is clarity. It's like looking through a clear window. And there's prophecy which is cloudy. There's a prophecy, which means you're looking through something fogged up. A window which is foggy. So Yaakov saw that there was something positive in Egypt and a positive reason for his sons to go, but it was cloudy in that he didn't see it was Yosef. Because God did not want Yaakov at this point to understand that Yosef was alive and well and in Mitzrayim. So it says Vayar is an allusion to Yaakov had a premonition. Yaakov basically had a premonition. To his boys, I think you should go to Egypt. Why? I'm not really sure. What's there? I can't tell you. But I think it'll be good for us. They have provisions. They have resources. Lama Tisra'u. Says Rashi, Lama taru atzmechem b'fnei b'nei Yishmol b'nei Esav ki'ilu atem zvayim ki'ba'oso sha'adayin ha'yolam tevua. He says, when you go down, Lama Tisrael means, don't be obvious. Don't be visible. Don't be conspicuous. Don't alienate the Arabs and the Christians. B'nai Yishmael are the Arabs, and B'nai Esav are the Christians. Not in Rashi's time, but by Rashi's time, already Chazal had already interpreted them in those ways. And the Gemara Tainus. But it means that Yaakov's family still had food. They weren't starving at this point. They still had some food. So he said, when you go down, don't flaunt the food that you have. And don't flaunt the blessing in your life. That's why Rashi tells us elsewhere, he tells them, when you enter the city, enter from ten different entrances. Don't walk in together. Ten striking, handsome, strong men with resources. What will that invoke? Ayin Hara. What do you need to invoke the Ayin Hara? Which again, we don't believe, we've done a class on Ayin Hara in the past. You could find it on Wai Torah. But we don't believe Ayin Hara means some superstitious, mystical, unexplainable power. Ayanara means don't alienate people. Don't welcome their gaze, their jealousy, their envy, which will invoke God's judgment. So Yaakov tells his boys, you're strapping, you're strong, you're good looking, you're successful, you're handsome. You don't need to alienate anyone. So don't alienate B'nai Yishmol, B'nai Esav, Lama Tisro, don't be conspicuous when you go down. This is a lesson for all Jewish history. When, thank God, we are successful as a community, we don't need to flaunt it. We don't need to highlight it. We don't need to welcome the derision, the jealousy, and the anti-Semitism of others. We don't have to hide. We, we can be proud, but there's a fine line between pride and alienation. We should be smart. We should be smart. So that's the Rashi. The Rashi tells us that was the instruction. So Yaakov tells his sons, he shamati, right? This was part of the question that bothered Rashi. Why does it say, Vayar, he saw, if when he tells his sons, Shamati, I heard. He said, it should have said, Raisi, I saw. That's what Rashi comes to the conclusion. He saw means he had a premonition. He shamati, but when he tells his sons, it means he heard. He tells them, Redu Shama. What should it say? Lechu, go to Egypt. Redu means descend. What was, why did he use that unusual word? Rashi tells us. Lo Remez 
the word redu in gematria is Rish is 200 I'm sorry 210 years so this is an allusion in gematria the numerical value the 210 years the Jews his children were destined to spend in slavery Yaakov again it's an allusion within the verse Redush, you're going to descend to Egypt for 210 years and that's why that word even though lechu may be made may be made more sense Correct. So this was the result. He knew what ultimately would be. I'm sorry, let's go back a second. So he said, I heard that there are resources in Egypt. Go down there and get the resources. We will live and we will not die. Anything bother you about that? It's repetitive. It's redundant. This bothers all the Mephoshim. Again, I say this every single week in the Parsha class. We are to read Chumash with a sensitivity to the text, discerning, analyzing, being bothered. That's how Arma Fershim understood when they saw redundancy or contradiction or anomalies or an unusual word or grammatical inconsistencies. So the Yorachayim here, Rav Chaim Ibn Atar, tonight is the first, by the way, I'm like a gratuitous plug. People of the Book, Part 2, starts tonight. Last year we had over 100, almost 150 participants. An incredible class, broken up into themes, but go through the major personalities of Jewish scholarship and liturgy and uh, give a biographical information as well as their what did they contribute in their commentary so we're beginning with Mephorshim the first segment or unit of the people of the book part 2 are Mephorshim of Tanakh so tonight Rabbi Moskowitz has an incredible class in the Radak, Rav David Kimchi Christian polemic, fantastic class anti-Christian polemic built into the text of the Radak if you haven't signed up, you have to sign up people of the book and then in two weeks, the only reason I mention this is next week Rabbi Kasorla has a phenomenal class. And in two weeks I'm doing the Orachayim HaKadosh, Orachayim Ben Atar. But people of the book part two, make sure you sign up while there's still room. It starts tonight. So the Orachayim HaKadosh, Orachayim Ben Atar, is bothered. Tam HaKefa, why is there a redundancy? Why the repetitiveness? Of course if you live, you're not going to die. And if you're not going to die, you're going to be alive. Well, what does he mean? If you don't do this, see there's two places that we live or die. There's the life in this world, and there's life in the world to come. So he says, if you don't do this, then you're going to have to pay the piper in the world to come. If you're passive and apathetic, and you don't go down to Egypt, then you're going to die, because we won't have provisions, and you're also going to be accountable in the world to come for the lack of human initiative. I think this is a powerful message also, that you can't sit on your couch and say, God will provide. You can't uh, bring to perspective of life. God will pro-. A young man came to me recently, I won't even tell you his young age, and said he went to a certain Rebbe, who used to frequent our community, but doesn't anymore, who said to him, you should start dating, get married. So I said to him, how, how, how are you going to provide for your family if you get married now? So he said, oh, I asked that to the Rebbe. I said, well, what did the Rebbe answer you? He said, get married and Hashem will provide. I said, is the Rebbe going to give you a blank check, a contract that if Hashem doesn't, he'll cover your expenses? Because otherwise, that's foolish. How could you get married? How could you begin dating without knowing how you're going to provide? So that's what the Yorachayim HaKadosh, Nechyev lo namus. How could you possibly um, How could you possibly Sit here in, in Israel 
in a famine, in a depression, when there's a way we could take care of ourselves, a way you could show human initiative to provide, if you're not going to show the human initiative, if you're not going to try yourself to provide, then you'll be accountable upstairs. So there's two worlds of effort. Or there's two realms of accountability here and above. A second interpretation the Yorachayim suggests is there is an in-between. could mean maybe you'll go down to Egypt and we'll be prosperous. Maybe you'll invest in a business, they'll make you a partner, you'll come back with plenty, we can resell it here in Israel. Maybe you'll go back and you'll return in a way that we can become prosperous. But minimally, at least go down and let's at least avoid dying. At least get something. So two interpretations of the Orachayim HaKadosh. But notice both began because he was bothered by a question. you got to read the text and ask questions. The brothers of Yosef descended, they were ten. In order to access the resources of Egypt. What's interesting about the Pasuk? Why does it say Ache Yosef? They've been identified heretofore as the sons of Yaakov. All of a sudden they became the brothers of Yosef. Says Rashi, Asara, Ma'atamad Lomar Valoksev, as Binyamin Ache Yosef. Sorry, I read the wrong one. Vayerdu Ache Yosef, Pasuk Gimel Rashi. Velokas of Bnei Yankiv. It doesn't say the sons of Yaakov. Malamei, the teacher Shayu Mizcharatim B'mechira So. At this point already, you can imagine. Again, here's the unwritten. This is, I mean, to me, that's why it's so exciting to study this Pasha. To imagine and to draw the imagery in our own minds of, of, of these personalities and psyches. Yaakov calls in his sons and he says, Hey boys, fellas, you're going down to Egypt. We're starving. We have very little left. We can take care of ourselves. But I estimate, I've spoken to my accountant Schwartz, and he says we have one month of provisions left. You've got to go down to Egypt to get more food. So you're going down to Egypt, boys. Pack your bags. Can imagine the boys walk out of the room and turn to one another and say, Egypt? What, what, what if we run into Yosef? What, is he alive? Is he dead? Whatever happened to him? We sold him there. Do we really want to go there? You can only imagine. It began a conversation. Who knows how much they thought of Yosef? Maybe they chose not to think about him until now. But when their father says, pack your bags, boys, you're going down to Egypt, they can't help but turn to one another and say, Egypt? Yosef? It's been going on for 22 years. It's a long time later, it's right. Conspiracy of silence. That's been going on. Excellent, well put. Conspiracy of silence, 22 years later, they've, they've wiped him, erased him, purged him from their memory, and now going down to Egypt brings back all these memories. Says Rashi, and what's the result? To the great credit of the brothers. To the great credit of the brothers. They don't say, and if we find him still alive, we're going to cut his head off. They feel regret, charata. They regret selling him. And what do they decide? You know what? We're going down to Egypt. We're on two missions. One is to come back with provisions, and the second is to come back with Yosef. It's a great expression of tshuva. That even though it's 22 years later, they have an opportunity to correct their wrong. So therefore the Pasuk, to their credit, identifies them as Achei Yosef. Because at that moment when they took leave of their father, they weren't the sons of Yaakov. They once again became the brothers of Yosef. They had forfeited their identity as the brothers of Yosef when they sold him into slavery. slavery. And now that they've determined they're going to redeem him and bring him home, they once again become Achei Yosef.
Asara, why ten? Says Rashi. So why does it say ten? We know that Yaakov, we know that Binyamin wasn't sent. So twelve minus one for Binyamin and one for Yosef is ten. We know it's ten. Why does the verse have to say ten? So it teaches us that they weren't all unified in this new love for Yosef. Not everybody was part of the plan. Not all ten were on the same page about the Bring Yosef Home campaign. In terms of getting money, everybody was on the same page. That, they were all determined equally. But in terms of bringing Yosef home, they were not all determined equally. Says the Svarno, Svorno gives a different answer. Why does the Pasuk tell us, to, again, what bothered both Rashi and the Svorno? What bothered them was, why does it tell us 10? We know it's 10. Minus Binyamin, minus Yosef, we know it's 10. Rashi gave an answer to tell us that the 10 were not unified. Svorno gives a different answer. He says that the um, bankers of Egypt who were giving out the money, the lenders, would only give provisions necessary for that house. One per family. Why? Because they were smart. If we allow you to buy ten per family, you're going to resell it, you're going to deplete, you're going to create competition for us. It'll diminish our selling power. There's a lot you can learn about economics from this parsha. So the Egyptians under Yosef understood that you only give out one per family, you therefore retain the power. You therefore retain the ability to set the price. So what would happen if only one person went down from the whole family of Yaakov? At this point, the brothers are married. They each have their own families. We're picturing them like little kinderlach uh, at home. Ten brothers, you know, they stopped uh, playing soccer to go down to Egypt. They were each married with their own large families at this time. So they needed to come back with provisions for everybody. If you only sent one, they would only come back for one, says the Svarno. That's why they went down ten, so that each one could get the provisions that they would need. Well, that's why Rashi concludes that they were not all equal. Ache Yosef, they became Ache Yosef, but they were Asara. They weren't one. They were ten, because they each had their own attitude towards him. But of course Yaakov refused to send Binyamin because he didn't want something to happen to him. Why? What did he fear something would happen to him? Because, first of all, he was young and therefore vulnerable, but also he was the only remaining son from Rachel. And Yaakov, we know, loved Rachel. So he was not going to risk losing his only connection to his beloved Rachel. They came down, and uh, because the famine was in Canaan, Yosef is the ruler of the land, he is the provider of the land. They come, and what do they do before him? Ooh, they bow down. Does that sound familiar? The brothers are going to bow? What do we see unfolding right before our very eyes? The dream is coming true. But what's unusual about this Pasuk? We don't have time to go into all these Mephorshim. Why is Yosef described by two titles? Shalit and Mashpir, and what's the difference? 
if the verse goes out of its way to use two descriptions of Yosef, he's the Shalit and he's the Mashbir, what does that mean? See the CFO and the vice president? Is he the, what does it mean? He has two titles. What's going on here? Again, the Mepharshim are bothered by it. So the Sforno says, Hu Shalit, Hu Mashbir, Shalit, well, you see from here is Hua Shalit. Yes, he is the superpower. Yes, he is very high up, second only to Paro. And what would you expect of somebody in such a high executive position? You think they're going to worry about the. Are they going to be the cashier? They're going to give out the, the cash? The president of the bank is not the cashier. Cashier is not, doesn't have the title of president. Says the Svarno, except here he does. Because this is such, the economy was in such shambles in the world, and here they had such power, and in order to protect, Yosef doesn't trust anyone. Yosef serves not only as the president of the bank, but Yosef is also the cashier. Hua Shalit, Hua Mashbir. What does the Chaskuni say? I don't have the Chaskuni here. Similar, yeah. That Yosef himself wants to to uh, to be involved. Mashbir means the one, the the the, uh, the supplier. He is the supplier. The Orachayim uh, also says similarly. Perish agam shua shalit vein derech shilton lehis tapel b'mechiras hatvua uma gam b'chol kach torech hamufla afapichenu amashpir lechol amaretz v'tamu kamus imola hakir beredus echav. Why did he do it? Says the Orachayim. See, the Svarno just tells us that Yosef did it because he wanted to protect the assets of Egypt. The Orachayim tells us it was much more strategic. What did Yosef? So far, we talked about it from the brother's perspective. Father calls them in and he says, "Boys, pack your luggage. You're going down to Egypt." Oh, Yosef! Now, from Yosef's perspective, says the Orachayim Hakadosh Nachizkuni, Yosef is a famine in the whole world. Yosef has protected and secured the assets of Egypt. Yosef knows that anybody who wants or needs to borrow, there's only one bank. Yosef's smart. He says, my father's a pretty smart guy, pretty resourceful. There's suffering up there. Where is he going to send my brothers? Down here. Yosef says, I need to be the cashier because I want to see them. If the off chance that my brothers come down here and I want to be able to interact with them, Yosef strategically makes himself the only cashier, which is not a very efficient way to do things, because he wants to make sure, says the Orachayim, Lakir Beredes Echav, to recognize if his brothers, if his brothers come. Let's just raise the thermostat. Get hang meat in this place. It's cold, no? Okay, so for the Orachayim, it's a strategic decision. The Ramban also has a conversation here, and the Ramban says that this is part of the, also the strategy to begin to recognize his brothers. Okay, you can look at the Ramban on your own. Continuing, Pasuke. Uh, we read Pasuke. Vav, Pasuk Zayin. Vayar Yosef So the brothers come down indeed, and what do they do? Vayishtachu, they bow down, just like the dream had anticipated. They bow down. So Yosef recognizes Vayisnaker alehem. It's a funny verb. Vayisnaker, hispael. It's reflexive. What does he do? Vayisnaker. Rashi says Nasalehem kenachri. He turns himself into a nachri. A nachri is not a derogatory uh, gentile. It means a stranger. 
reflexive. He did something to turn himself into a stranger to his brothers that he wouldn't be recognized. And he spoke to them harshly. Where are you from? We're from Israel. We just came for, for some resources. We're hungry. Very interesting. Yosef recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Of course, the pervasive question for the rest of this parsha, the rest of Sefer Bereshus, is what is Yosef thinking? Why doesn't Yosef at this moment say, Hey, brothers, it's me, Yosef. Let's go home. Bring dad here. I miss dad. Even though I'm going to imprison you and kill you and take revenge again. What's going on here? What is Yosef's master plan? 22 years later, why is Yosef not seeking to reconcile? Why is Yosef not seeking to reunite with his father? What's going on here? What's going? Remember, from Yosef's perspective, he doesn't know here whether his father was in on the plan, not in the plan. Yosef's sitting there wondering, why hasn't my father come look for me for 22 years? Right? If God forbid one of our children went missing, we would put out the Amber Alert, we'd put a call to the police, there'd be helicopters, we'd go looking everywhere. Yosef says, 22 years, I'm sitting in Egypt. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. But really, that is the question. What's going through Yosef's mind that he goes through this plot? So let's see this Pesukim. Yosef sees his brothers Vayakirim and he recognizes them. He reflexively turns himself into a stranger. And he says, where are you from? And they identify where they're from. Yosef recognizes them again. Redundant. Obvious question. Why does it say Vayakir Yosef a second time? Vahem lohiki ruhu, but they don't recognize him. Why don't they recognize him? Rashi tells us. Because when he left them, okay, they don't recognize the name on the door, but they're sitting opposite him right now. Why don't they recognize him opposite him? Because when he left, he didn't have a beard. Meaning he was young. He had not yet grown a beard. But now he's hit the point that he has a beard, so he's not recognized in that. That's Rashi's interpretation. Look at the uh, Sforno. He made himself reflexively and a stranger to them. It's a fantastic Sforno. How did he make himself into a stranger? How did he make himself unrecognizable to them? Says the Sforno, by speaking harshly. See, Yosef was so humble and so modest and so soft-spoken that by being so temperamental, speaking with anger and rage, he was unrecognizable to them as Yosef. That's how they put the words together. He was unrecognizable because he spoke so harshly. Says the Svarno, normally he spoke ba'anava, normally he spoke modestly, humbly. Here he didn't, therefore he was unrecognizable. In Egypt. That's interesting. Okay, because it describes here like he had grown a beard. But, but how, yeah. how, do you, how do you reconcile the Anava with all the dreams? And then say, and, and he, they, I mean, the, the reason why they were angry at him is because he was so Right, arrogant. excellent question. So maybe the Anava doesn't mean, it means soft-spoken. He didn't yell, didn't raise his voice, wasn't angry, wasn't, he shared his dreams, but at least he communicated them in a soft-spoken way. The Rashbam adds that they didn't recognize him because he was now dressed in... Yeah. in, in, in Dressed like this. 
וגם מן הכל לא היו מכירים אותו, כי היו די מתורגם על המדבר עמהם. He also adds in, why didn't they recognize his voice? So again, Rashi says they didn't recognize his voice because Diber Kashos. Svarno says they didn't recognize it because he was yelling and he never used to yell. The Rashbam says they didn't recognize his voice because they didn't speak, he didn't speak to them directly. He spoke to them through an interpreter. Which also makes sense, by the way, because how, how would he know Hebrew? He would have given away his identity by knowing Hebrew. He spoke to them, which we'll see comes into the plot later, the fact that he spoke through an interpreter. The, um, here there's a long kliyakar who gets into why he did everything he did. We'll come back to it in a second. Uh, we'll come back to it in a second. Keep reading. So when he recognizes his brothers, he sees them bowing down to him. What does he realize? My gosh, my dreams are coming true. This, you see the answer to our question is built into that statement. So how does he, what does he do immediately? He's right there, right there he's at a crossroads. Right there was the point. He recognizes his brothers, they don't recognize him. He sees them bowing down to him. And right there is a crossroads where he could have gone either way. He could have said, hey brothers, it's me. Instead he says, you're spies. You've come to see the Erva Sa'aretz. You've come to undress the land, to understand it. You're going to try to attack you're going to try to take over our economy. Why does he go that direction? To, to continue to bring the dreams to fruition. You see, and again, this is so unwritten in the text, but we have to paint the picture in our own minds. The 22 years Yosef sitting in prison, maybe he's saying to himself, ah, maybe those dreams were stupid. I held on to those dreams as a kid. I pursued those dreams. I was excited by those dreams. I felt connected to my father, to God through those dreams. I thought that I had a future. Eh, maybe it was all stupid. It was Narishkeit. Narishkeit. It was all stupid. Now all of a sudden he had given up on those dreams. The brothers come. And they're bowing down. It revives the dreams. And he says to himself, Ooh, maybe I am the chosen one. Maybe there is a plan. Maybe God does want to construct a certain outcome. So instead of revealing himself, he sees where it goes. And he tells the brothers, You're spies. We're spies. What are you talking about? We just came for, for some food. We're all one. And Rashi tells us, when they said we're all one, Beruach HaKodesh, they included Yosef. Everyone in this room, we're one. Including you, you're our brother. They didn't know it. We're not spies. You are spies. We're twelve. We've come as one. The youngest is not with us. One other one. It's very ambiguous, right? Another one's not with us either. Well, the young one you said is with our father. Where's that mysterious other one? You can imagine Yosef hears that. And there's another one. Uh, forget him. So Yosef says, I don't buy it. You're spies. I swear to you on the life of Paro, because Yosef knew he had concocted a scheme here, you're not going to swear in God's name, so you don't mind swearing on Paro's name. You're not leaving until I see your youngest brother. Give me one. He says, uh, leave me one. 
and uh, go, back. go back and bring back the youngest. He throws him in prison three days to think about it. The third day he said, This is what you are to do. Go back, retrieve the youngest brother. I'm holding one of you here hostage. Ransom. Until then. Otherwise, I believe you're all spies. You get nothing off of your heads. And why am I doing all of this? What a bizarre conclusion. Because I fear God. I fear God. So there's a lot to examine. We only have a couple minutes left. So to answer that last question. So I think, first of all, it continues the Michlala theme in Yosef's life. Even when he is being deceptive, even when he is concealing his identity from his brothers, he can't help but invoke God's name. Even in this situation, he can't help but reference God. Elohim But more than that, the Ramban and Sforna both explain that he was telling them, I'm being kind to you. I think you're spies. Really, I should kill you right now. But because Elohim and you've told me you have an old father and a young brother sitting in Israel, in Canaan, hungry, because Elohim because I'm a God-fearing man, I'm going to let most of you go back, bring you provisions, take care of your family, sustain your father and youngest brother, because I'm God-fearing. Could it be that he won't see if they really did tshuva? Well, that's, that's what we're going to see in a second. The Sforno writes, it's Elohim V'lachain, I'm letting you go back. I'm letting you take care of your father because I'm God-fearing. The Ramban says similarly. Okay, so what I want to see just our last couple minutes answering this question. What was the plan? Why didn't Yosef reveal himself? Why does he go through this whole exercise here? So the Ramban deals with this right here. Look at the Ramban Pasuk test, verse 9. says the Ramban Nachmanides. Lefidatisha dover behepech. He saw the brothers bowing down. He remembered the dreams. Rashi says he saw the dream come true and that's how he knew that he should stick with his plan because there was a bigger, a bigger thing unfolding. Says the Ramban, no, the opposite. He realized that his dream had not yet come true. That only 10 of the brothers bowed down but in his dream all 11 did. So he had to create a scenario where the 11th brother would come down and bow down also to see the dream come true. The Ramban says the opposite. So he couldn't reveal his identity because that would prevent the dream. He never gave up on the dream. According to Rashi, it's as if he gave up on the dream. Now he saw the dream come true, it revived his dreams. According to the Ramban, no, he never gave up on the dream. So now when he sees only 10 bow down, he says, oh, the dream still hasn't come true. I better bring Binyamin down here in order to make the dream come to fruition in its entirety. Says Ramban, why do I have to explain this way? Why am I explaining that it was within God's plan for Yosef to create a scenario where Binyamin would come down and then later Yaakov would come down, which was the Shemesh and Yarech bowing down? Yosef was proactively fulfilling both dreams. Says the Ramban, why am I forced to understand it this way? Because without this, 
There's no excuse for the violation of Kivarav Aim that Yosef contributes to his father's pain by not reuniting with his father. Because when the brothers go back, now a father's not only mourning Yosef, he's mourning Shimon, who's been in prison. Why Shimon? For another time. Even if he wanted to cause his brothers pain because they deserve it, how could he not take pity on his father? Says the Ramban, Yosef acted appropriately because he knew it was up to him to make the dreams come true. And the way to make the dreams come true, he had to create a scenario where first Benjamin would come down and then his father would come down. That is the Ramban's interpretation. There's more to the Ramban. Read the rest on your own. Says the Kliyakar. And we end with this Heilaga Kliyakar. Right, we didn't answer this question. Why does it say he, he recognized them twice? Okay. It says, Why does it say twice he recognized them? So first he quotes Rashi, that first means he recognized them as a group. Oh, this is a band, this is my brothers. And then one by one, he says, oh, that's Ruvain. Oh yeah, that's Shimon. Look at that, that's Levi. First he saw them as a group, these are my brothers, and then individually. Um, second paragraph from the Kliyakar. Anybody with a brain in their head has to ask this question. What was Yosef thinking, causing pain to his father? And he quotes the Ramban, that he did all of this to make his dreams come true. He asks what we call a bomb kasha. He asks what I find a very compelling question on the Ramban. If God wanted the dreams come true, God should have orchestrated their coming to fruition. Why is Yosef doing it? Why is Yosef entitled to cause pain to his father, even if he thinks it's to orchestrate the fulfillment of the dreams? Let God do that. That's God's business. That's God's job. Because Yosef says himself, if God denied my father the knowledge that I'm alive for 22 years, who am I to reveal it to him? Twenty-two years, says Yosef, twenty-two years Yaakov is being punished that he didn't respect his father. Because of the time he went to learn in the Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever, and then he lived with Lot, with, uh, with Lavan, and then he delayed, he took two years to come home. So my father's being paid, Mida who am I to interfere with God's meeting out punishment, Mida Keneged Mida. And the Kliyakar goes on and gives another answer, we're out of time, but I'll tell it to you, I'll tell it to you outside, you have to hear it. Yosef is doing here is... Yosef's offering two tests of his brothers. The uh, art scroll, the Heliga Stone Chumash, quotes this on the bottom of page 233 from Rav Hirsch. Yosef is testing his brothers in two ways. He says, I want to keep one of your brothers here because I want to see you abandon me. If you're truly remorseful, the real tshuva will be if you no longer are willing to abandon a brother. I want to see. Are you willing to abandon a brother as, you, as you've done previously? Are you going to come back for Shimon A? And B, will you bring Binyamin? Later he orchestrates putting the goblet in Binyamin's backpack and so on because now he wants to see, okay, maybe you didn't abandon Shimon because he was one of you. 
I came from Rachel, that's why you abandoned me. Now let me see what you're going to feel towards Binyamin, because he's the other one from Rachel. But what Yosef was doing is creating a scenario that wasn't causing pain to the brothers, he was providing the opportunity for them to do the ultimate tshuva. Says Rafersh and number two, when the brothers see that Yosef is the viceroy and that his dreams in fact have come true, what precipitated the whole thing to begin with? Eh, they were sick of hearing this dreamer. His dreams were going to be sick of it. Now when they see that they've come true, will it incite their anger against towards him or will they be able to accept it and respect it? So Yosef wants to see in both ways, have they changed? And the only way he can see that fully is by orchestrating this story as we watch it continue to unfold. Have a great week and a wonderful Hanukkah.